like you to open your Bibles, if you would, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10. We've been blessed in the past couple of weeks to have uh, visiting missionaries with us, and we rejoice in the part of ministry that we have with them and in reaching people in other parts of the world with the Gospel of Christ. And I'm very impressed by the work that our missionaries do. I think about Brother Mongo, who was with us last week, and how he ministers in East Africa. And to be a Christian in that part of the world and some of the other countries that he, besides Kenya, that he is ministering to, it can be a very, very difficult thing. You've read in papers and you've heard on the news probably about social unrest that goes on in those countries, especially around election times. They have a lot of problems there. And for those who make a commitment that they will follow Christ, becoming a Christian in places of the world like that could mean that you would lose your life. It's very costly to become a Christian. Reaching people for Christ is, of course, costly. And as much as we have to send our tithes and offerings, we support them with money. But people that receive Christ in those places have a personal cost that's involved for them, which could be losing their life. Now, in America, we're living with what I think we would call a cheapened gospel. We live with a gospel where there is no real commitment, where no one really pays a cost for being a Christian. In fact, the gospel that's preached in many churches is an enrichment gospel. It's a material gospel. It's a feel-good gospel. It's one that is man-centered rather than God-centered. And here in Matthew, we find, especially in Matthew 6 and 10, that Jesus dispels any notions of material gains for his disciples. We've seen here how that he tells them they must live by faith. They were not to concern themselves with with how they would live, uh, where they would live, how they would be clothed, where that next meal would come from, because God was going to make sure they received their daily provisions. And remarkably, here in in chapter 10, we see that there must be such a strong commitment to Christ that Jesus says, you must be willing to uh, to lose your life if necessary. Now, we're reading here in this 10th chapter about preparations for the first missionary journey that the disciples would go on, and they wouldn't lose their lives in this first missionary journey. But later, that did happen. And many people that they won to the Lord, that were converted to Christ, they also lost their lives. And that's been true throughout the history of the church. There have been many martyrs because of their faith. Now, our study today in Matthew talks about a real hardcore commitment to Christ. Believing in him and following him is not easy street. It requires a real cost. And if you want to be Jesus' disciple, you have to pay that cost. Now, if you look in Matthew chapter 10, our study is in verses 34 through 42. Stand with me, please, as we read God's word. Matthew chapter 10, beginning with verse number 34, Jesus says, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I come to, I have come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, 
And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. He that receiveth you receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. He that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he that receiveth a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward." Heavenly Father, thank you for the reading of your word today. Lord, open up our hearts to what you'd have us to know. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's been two weeks. Well, three weeks now. Three weeks now since we were last uh, on our subject here of Matthew chapter 10. And after that long time gap, I, I think it's necessary that we refresh ourselves just a little bit about what we talked about in the last message. We looked at verses 34 through 37 in the first part of this message, and at that time I was speaking to you about the paradox of peace. Jesus said that he did not come to make peace on earth. And that seems like a very strange statement for Jesus to make. Jesus was a peaceful person. He taught people that they were to love their enemies. He was kind. He was compassionate. He was always helping people that were sick and were hurting. And I would dare say that you've probably not heard too many sermons or heard many speeches when people are talking about peace that they would mention what Jesus says in this particular passage. They will not quote the statement that Jesus said, I did not come to send peace. In fact, if you're not a Bible student, you might not even know that those words were spoken by Jesus. But he did speak these words. And as much as he taught about peace and about love, as much as he taught about loving our enemies, he did say this, that when you teach the gospel properly, he says, it will ruin peace. He said that families would be broken apart by it. The difference between light and darkness is so great. It's so striking that to become a Christian, to be one person in a family that's, uh, that is a Christian, can often mean that your family will be torn apart. The paradox of peace is that Jesus brings peace to those that receive the gospel. Jesus has brought us into perfect harmony with God through the gospel. Uh, We are at one with him. We are reconciled to him. But at the same time, Jesus says that when we become reconciled to him and we receive the peace of God in our hearts, that there is a division between believers and unbelievers. He breaks the peace of families. He breaks the peace of communities. He breaks the peace of nations. He splits apart believers from unbelievers. And there's always going to be that that conflict, that clash between the two sides. Sometimes that becomes intense enough that lives are lost. Unbelievers take up a sword against Christians. They will kill Christians at times. And we see that happening in mission fields and other parts of the world. Now, the teaching here in Matthew chapter 10 is to prepare believers for that possibility. Jesus brings a metaphorical sword of the gospel, but others may take up a physical sword of revenge. 
And that's what you read throughout church history. When you see people dying for the cause of Christ, it's because unbelievers and believers have been split apart by the gospel of Christ. And so many times, believers have to leave their families. They've made a commitment, and the cost is so high that their families are torn apart. And if it comes to that, Jesus tells us that there can be no love greater than the love that we have for him. And if our family stands in the way, then our family has to be forsaken. And that's not easy. And you might not imagine that Jesus would ever make that demand, but he does. And he says that we must love God first. And if we don't love God first, then there is no real love for God. That's what real discipleship is. Real faith in Christ produces that kind of commitment. Now, I want to go a little bit further today, and I want us to see how that Jesus builds on that thought of forsaking all for him. He says, family may stand in your way, and you have to forsake family, but there's a greater deterrent to following Christ than our families. And the greatest deterrent of all to following Jesus Christ is self. It's self-preservation. It's putting ourselves above God. And he says that you must be willing to sacrifice self. And Jesus frames that in the principle of the commitment to a cross. The commitment to a cross. Now look at verse number 38. He says, And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Here, Jesus mentions the cross. Now, what do you think the disciples were thinking when Jesus said this? Well, I believe that most people would associate the the cross with Christ's death. We can read the story of Jesus' life, and we do know that the hatred for him became intense enough that he was finally nailed to a cross. And so we see that word cross in the scripture. Jesus uses it here. And what we visualize in our minds is this suffering, dying, bleeding Savior hanging on a cross. And so we think the disciples must have thought about that. They must have considered that. That if we follow Jesus, if we're going to be like him, then we will have to die on a cross just like Jesus died on the cross. But this was not in their thinking at that time. Now remember... They were very confused about a suffering Savior. They were very confused about what the Messiah would do. Even up to the very last hours before Jesus went to the cross, they still didn't understand what was going to happen to him. If you think about Judas for just a moment, he's the one that would later betray Jesus. But here at this time in Matthew chapter 10, he's been chosen as a disciple. He is still following Jesus. He's hanging around. And he fully expected that what Jesus would do very soon was to pull a political coup. And then he would be there on the ground floor of the kingdom and receive a position of power. Now, the other apostles, they weren't greedy like Judas was, but they had the same thing in their mind. Jesus is about to begin his kingdom, and when he does, we will rule with him. And so when Jesus mentions the cross here in chapter 10, they didn't associate that with his death. Later, looking back on it, understanding the teachings of Jesus and seeing what did happen to him, later they would say, well, yes, he was probably talking about his own death. And then he, he points it out here so that we can read it today. We understand that Jesus was going to the cross. 
But at this very moment, the disciples didn't know that. The disciples didn't understand it. And Jesus knew their hearts, and he knew that they were not going to make this association with Calvary. And so he spoke this to them for a different purpose. They were well aware of the cross. They knew about crosses. They knew that that was a form of Roman execution. It was cruel. They knew that it had been used on others. And they also knew that the Romans used that in order to control the Jewish population. There were various insurrections that happened around the time that Jesus was was here. Uh, In Galilee, there was one particular uh, insurrection in which there were 2,000 Jews that, that were killed, crucified on crosses, and then those crosses were put along the highways of Galilee as a reminder of what happens to people when they defied the Roman government. And so when Jesus spoke of the cross, what was on their minds was not the suffering of him on Calvary, but Jesus was saying, you have to be willing to go this far, that you must be willing to give up your life, and you must be willing to die a torturous death, torturous death if necessary. And the disciples got that picture instantly. I mean, this was not a play on words. Jesus was not using a metaphor here when he said, take up your cross. He wasn't telling them that what you have to do to be a Christian is to give up potato chips for Lent. He was talking about a real, literal cross and dying for him. And he wasn't talking about uh, saying a little prayer to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I love you. Now where's my new car? That's not... This is not rather getting something from him, but what he's speaking of here is giving up everything for him, even if it means your life. And so the cross was a rather vivid image. And when you get this image into your mind, then you're going to react to that in one of two ways. The people in those days reacted to the gospel of Christ and the fact that there is a cross in that gospel in one of two ways. So you can respond to this statement, and he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me in one of two ways. The first response that people give to Jesus' statement is avoidance of the cross. Avoid the cross. Get away from the cross as far as you can. And of course, in those times, persecution for Christians was becoming very real. It was ramping up even as Jesus taught this. The religious leaders had already accused Jesus of being demonic. And what do you do with devils? Well, you try to get rid of a devil if you can. And they thought Jesus was a devil. So get rid of him and get rid of all the people that follow him. And that's what they tried to do. Soon after the crucifixion, the persecution was ramped up to the point that the disciples were driven out of Jerusalem. Many of them were killed. They were associated now with the cross of Christ. And so prospective converts had to have this in their mind. This is the result of believing in Christ. And so they thought, there is no way that I'll get involved with this. There is no way that I'm going to risk going to a cross. But as Jesus says in verse number 39, if you try to save your life now by avoiding the cross, then you'll lose it later and you will lose it eternally. I realize that prospective converts to Christianity in America don't think this way. They've never seen a cross. They've never seen anyone die for becoming a Christian. 
And really, folks, to refuse Christ in this day and hour, to refuse him in the world that we live in right now here in America, to refuse him is a worse response for us than it was for them, even though they had Jesus right there in their midst. And do you know why? It's because they could see the persecution. They could see what happened for following Jesus. Now, they didn't have a good excuse. It's not an excuse for them, but we can understand that, can't we? We understand why they would have refused to follow him because they saw what would happen to them. We think about our condition. What is our excuse? Why do people refuse to believe in Christ now? Well, people resent being called sinners. They, they don't want to be embarrassed in front of their peers by becoming a Christian. They can't stand the thought of submission. They don't want to give up control of their lives to Christ. And doesn't really, they don't really understand they're not in control anyway. They're self-deluded. They're not in control of their own lives. But yet they think they call the shots and they're the masters of their own fate. And so they avoid the cross. But they do so at their peril they will lose their lives. I mean, the very thing that they thought that they were going to save is going to be lost. And most people think giving up control is the destruction of my life. That's not the saving of it. It's not natural for us to give up self. And so they want to keep their lives. They want to save their lives. And Jesus says, you won't save it. You'll lose your life. Death comes to every person. Every person is going to lose his life in that sense. But far worse than that, when you are not surrendered to the will of God for your life, when you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, you lose your life in eternity as well. And so that's one reaction that people have. You can try to save your life now, and you can avoid losing your life for a little while by avoiding the cross. But there's something far worse than a cross that's waiting And that's the judgment of God. Judgment is coming. The wrath of God is coming. And so the easy path, at least for now, for a little while, is to save your life and to avoid the cross. But the other reaction is one that's more difficult. At least for now, it's more difficult. And that is the acceptance of the cross. Why do you need to accept the cross? Well, we go back to the first part of the message, and we'll see there that if you want peace with God... If you want to avoid the wrath of God, if you want to be reconciled to God, there's only one means by which you can be reconciled to him, and that's by the cross. These familiar words were written by Paul in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. He said, But God commendeth his love toward us, or God demonstrated his love to us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more, being now justified by his blood... We shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So we are reconciled to God by the blood of the cross. And Paul says that in Colossians 1.20. He says, God has reconciled us by the blood of the cross. Reconciliation is the same as saving our lives from destruction. Now, you can't really see that with the English word lose in Matthew 10, 39, when Jesus talks about losing your life. You don't really see the full impact of that word in the English language. But what it actually means, it's much stronger than this. It means to destroy. He says, you will destroy your life by avoiding the cross. But if you will accept the pain and the ridicule for following Christ right now, then you'll be saved in eternity. 
So it's the difference between saving your soul and losing your soul. Well, if that's true, then we would have to ask, why is it that so many people will not receive Christ? Why don't people see the value in this? Why, why isn't that they get, won't give up self now in order to receive eternity in heaven later? Well, it's because everybody is way off when it comes to making good spiritual decisions. People can make good business decisions. They're capable of making good family decisions. They, they make good financial decisions. Some do. But when it comes to spiritual decisions, people are way off. And why is that? Well, it's because man lost the capability of making good spiritual decisions in the fall. So you can't just go to a person and by reason and by ration alone have them to understand the value of their souls so that they will begin to value their souls more than they do their lives. So why is it that some people believe and some don't? Well, if any of this makes sense to you, it's not because of arguments that I've made. It's not because I can use some kind of clever tactic in order to get you to believe the gospel. The reason that you believe, the reason that you accept any of these arguments, the reason that you begin to understand the value of your soul is because God is working inside of you. God has to work inside of you in order for you to understand that your soul is more valuable than your life. And so if you're thinking about this, if you're weighing this cost-benefit ratio of coming to Jesus Christ, that's a sign that God is already working in your heart and ready to bring you into his family. And I would go a step further than that, that if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, that God brought you here. God brought you here in order to hear this so that you could believe it. And when you do believe in Christ, then the cross really doesn't become a deterrent any longer. And in the next verses, we'll see that at the end of this constant barrage of negatives that Jesus has given throughout this 10th chapter, a very different ending. It's it's hard to sort through some of these negatives and, and all these bad things. It's hard to get through that in our thinking because we've talked about persecution and loss of family relationships, about becoming outcasts, about possibly even death. And so people wonder, with all that Jesus has said, is there anything positive to becoming a Christian? There is. And Jesus ends the chapter on a great note. Thirdly, he speaks of the righteous man's reward. Now, we've already discussed the chief benefit, and that's that your soul is saved for eternity. And if you didn't get that part, then we might as well hang it up right now and call it quits. You have to understand that. The next part's not worth talking about unless you understand the part about your soul, saving your soul for eternity. But there are many people who think, well, there's nothing good that comes later. The philosophy of the world is eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And that fatalistic attitude says there's nothing good in death. There, there is nothing good that can come from death. And so we might as well get all the pleasure in life that we can right now. There was an old beer commercial that said, you only go around once in life, so grab for all the gusto that you can get. I'm not supposed to know that, but uh, I did. <laughs> People think like that because pleasing self is the most important thing. That's what people spend most of their time doing. 
But the person that's been made righteous by Christ does not live a life that's devoid of all pleasure. I mean, believe it or not, we do receive pleasure from serving Christ. In spite of all these hardships that we've talked about, in spite of all the negatives that are listed in this passage, we still joy in our Christian lives, and on top of that, we get rewards in heaven. Now, let me explain to you some of the pleasures of living for Christ right now. I think this is a great benefit of living for Christ. First of all, it's the blessing of a new family. He says in verse number 40, He that receiveth you receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. Jesus knew that the disciples, when they went into these different towns and villages with the gospel, that it wasn't going to be a total washout. Jesus didn't send them there on a a mission that was a suicide mission or one that would be fruitless. He knew that they would not be rejected by every person, and he knew that they would not be thrown out of every home, and he knew they would not be cast out of every town. Some would believe. They would hear the gospel, and they would receive it. Uh, They would receive the disciples, and the reception of them was the reception of Christ. And receiving Christ means that there's the ability to enter into a new relationship with God the Father. Just as the disciples were children of the Father by faith, every new convert becomes a child of the Father by faith. And so when they receive the apostles, they receive Christ, and when they receive Christ, they belong to the Father. And you see what that does? It, it, it means that every one of us that trust in Christ are brought into one big family. He says, you may have to leave your family you might have to leave your, your family here, but you're not going to be without a family. You're going to receive a family. That's one of the greatest benefits there is of becoming a Christian. We have this great extended family where we're all common to the same faith, and we have the common father. And you can really sense that feeling when you read the writings of the Apostle Paul. He went through almost everything, if not everything, that Jesus said would happen there in this 10th chapter. He went through all types of persecutions. But you read his letters, and you see the constant repetition of brother, brother, brother. In Romans chapter 1, he says, I thank God for you. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, all of us are together comforted by God. In Ephesians, he speaks of the peace of the brethren. In Philippians, he talks about thanking God for the thought of those that he had brought to Christ. He remembered them and he commended them for their support. And that's what happens when you come into a church. You get the fellowship of a new family. And that's why it's so hard for us to see people leave. It's hard for us to see people move away. I have relatives that live on the other side of the country, and I'm glad that there's this huge separation between us. That's okay with me. But I have brothers and sisters in Christ that I don't want to be away from. When, When I go on vacation, I'm glad to come back to my church and see the fellowship or have the fellowship with my family here. This is my family. And then you think about this. Whenever you give the gospel to someone and they believe, do you think that that person is ever going to forget you? Do you think they're ever going to forget what you did for them in bringing them the gospel of Christ? I remember years ago meeting a man um, in the construction business, and, and he was really struggling with family. He was really struggling with his faith, and he didn't know where to turn. So I talked to him about the Lord. 
I haven't seen that man now for 14 or 15 years. But whenever I go back to Kentucky, my brother-in-law says he always asks about you. And he says, that's the guy that saved my life. Now, I remember the bus ministry that we had back in Kentucky. We brought thousands and thousands of children to church over the years. And after so many years, there would be teenagers that would come to me, some young adult, I'd meet them somewhere away from the church, and they would say, do you remember me? You drove the bus that I rode to church. You came to my house and you visited me. You came to my house and you brought me to church. Folks, when when you bring people to Christ, when you tell them about Christ, you get a brand new family. You get bonds that are never broken. Some will receive you. Some will believe. And this church is the collection of believers into a great big family. And so we have a family reunion every time we come to a church service. Isn't that a great feeling? I mean, doesn't that make it worth it? Being a Christian is not fear and dread. It's a happy life. It's a fulfilled life. I mean, there's so many things that you receive in your Christian life that are of lasting, eternal value. These are not things that crumble away just after a few years. You have these things forever. Well, I mentioned earlier about being thankful for our missionaries that have come to visit us, and it's a privilege to be able to share in their ministries. I want you to notice something here very special about the relationship that we have with them, and we find it in verse number 41. It says, He that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he that receiveth a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. Let me tell you about a second blessing that you get from following Christ, and that is the blessing of sharing with the minister. The blessing of sharing with the minister. Now, a true prophet, we see here in verse number 41, and the primary meaning of prophet in that verse is a preacher. A true preacher is a righteous man. And as a believer, you are a righteous person. And whenever you help in the ministry, you share in the blessings of the minister. Story comes to my mind of Elijah. This is when uh, God brought judgment upon Israel because of the wickedness of King Ahab. And God sent Elijah to tell Ahab that there was going to be three and a half years when it wasn't going to rain. Now, the bad part of that prophecy as far as Elijah was concerned, is that he would have to live through that same three and a half years. And there was a great famine that came because of it. But what God did was to send Elijah to a widow in Zarephath. And he said to Elijah, this woman will feed you. And when Elijah got there, the woman was down to her last meal. The famine had hit her hard. And so she was preparing the last little bit of food that she had And she was going to feed it to her son, and she was going to take part of that, and then they would eat it and die. Elijah had the audacity to ask that woman to take her last meal and to feed him. He was the man of God, and so by faith, this is what she did. She fed him. Elijah shared God with her, and she shared a meal with him. And that lady was blessed by God so that God fed her all the way up until the time that the rain started again. Now, that's an example of helping someone in a physical way. And, and I'm by no means telling you that what you need to do is that you need to send your money into the miracle ministries, send them $5, and God will send you back $500. 
I'm just telling you that when you help a minister, you receive a blessing for it. Now, let's take that where we really ought to go, and that's the eternal reward that God promises. When you have a part in supporting the minister or supporting the missionaries, then you will receive a reward for that participation. It's your tithes and offerings that make it possible to keep this building open, to keep a place here where we can preach the Word of God. Your tithes and offerings that are sent to missionaries and support the work here, when a soul is one here or a soul is one on the, on the mission field, then you have a part of that. You have a part of that, of that reward that comes, the blessing that comes from seeing souls saved, no matter what part of the world that they're in. And then there's another part of this, the the great ending of this chapter. If you look at verse number 42, it says, And whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. And I want you to get this as we finish up the message today, that there is a blessing of being the minister. There's the blessing of being the minister. Now, sometimes we look at the titles and we think, well, the pastor, he's the, he's the minister. The missionaries, those are the ministers. The paid staff of the church, those are the ministers. But none of us have the ability that you have. You see, the church is not built on the back of the guy behind the pulpit. Now, he may hinder or he may help, but he's not the one that builds the church. The ministry of the church goes on by the people that are sitting out there in the pew. And there are all kinds of blessings, all kinds of rewards that are laying around everywhere just waiting for you to pick them up. The rewards are in witnessing and confessing Christ before men. The rewards are in the kindness that you show to others. The rewards are in building relationships with people. The rewards are in backing the staff and praying for them. The rewards are in extending a helping hand to anyone in the church that needs it. Listen to the writer of Hebrews. He says in Hebrews 6 verse 10, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. And that verse is more than talking about helping pastors and missionaries. This is when you help just the ordinary guy, the person that needs your help, the brother that's moving out of his house, and he needs somebody to carry some boxes or help to lift some furniture. The, the, this is talking about the reward of fixing a meal for someone who just got out of the hospital and needs your help. This is the reward of answering a phone call in the middle of the night. And the person says, I need someone to talk to. And I think we could take this verse literally as well. He talks about giving a cup of cold water. I think about Tom or Mrs. Silva or Lou Somebody says, you know, they need some water up there on the platform because Brother Dalton and the pastor, they're going to croak before they get done if they don't get a drink. So just that, just doing that, just bringing a little bit of water here, God blesses for those things. God remembers the small things. You know, I I think that we're going to be surprised at how many little things that God remembers, how many little things that God has written down in his books, just those kind Little things that Christians do for one another. This is the attitude that you see in first century Christianity. They didn't look at Christianity after hearing all of this and and say, well, the fastest way to get the life beat out of you is to become a Christian. 
That's not how they fought. They were joyful people. They were giving people. They were people that were in the midst of all sorts of frightening situations, praising God for the opportunity just to be of help in some small way. Let me give you a couple more passages that I want to call to your attention on this. If you'll turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 for just a minute. Um, This is a comment that Paul made about poor Christians in Macedonia that helped other poor Christians that were in Jerusalem. They had taken up an offering, and they were sending it by Paul to help saints that were in Jerusalem. And these people in Macedonia were far worse off than any of us today. But you'll look in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse number 1. Paul says, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit, or we want you to know, about the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. How that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality. I just wanted to open up that part to you so you can see poor Christians ministering to other poor Christians. But there's another verse that I really want to get to, and this is the comparison that Paul makes between them and Christ. In the ninth verse, he says, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that through your poverty, or his poverty rather, uh, that ye through his poverty might be rich. I've thought about that verse many times, but I never saw it like I did just a few days ago. I know that we normally preach this verse in a Philippians 2 sort of way. And I mean by that, that in Philippians chapter 2, it talks about Christ stepping down from the throne in glory, about becoming a man, about going to the death of of the cross. Christ gave up everything in order that we could be saved. But I looked at this verse in a little bit different way the last time. What was the end that was in view? Did Jesus give up everything not knowing that he would recover everything that he gave up and more besides? He came to this earth and he gave it all up knowing that by his blood he would receive a people for his own name and that he would take those people back into heaven. He would save them and take them to heaven. He would return to his greatest glory and he would display the greatest attribute that he has and that is his love. He would gain a people to love him in return. The Bible says we love him because he first loved us. And so Jesus knew that great benefit that would be received if he would give up his life. And this is what helps you to understand that taking up a cross right now is a temporary assignment. It's best for right now because the ending is not a cross. The ending is eternity in heaven. So Jesus gave us a great example. By his poverty, we became rich. And by the same token, by your willingness to confess Christ before men and your willingness to go to a cross, to take up your cross and to follow him, you are responsible also for bringing people into the kingdom of God. You become the minister, and you're the one that receives the reward. And there is no greater reward than this. Now here's the last scripture, and I'll read it to you, and I think that you can put all the rest of what I've said together here, and and this really makes good sense, because if, if you're looking for something rational and reasonable, then you need to trust Jesus and hear this from his own lips. On his final trip to Jerusalem, the one that would lead to his death, this is a discussion that took place between Jesus and the disciples, 
And it occurred just after a rich ruler had come to Jesus and asked him how he might obtain eternal life. Jesus told him that what he needed to do was to sell all that he had and give it to the poor. And he said, come and follow me. And the Bible says that the man went away sorrowful because he thought that that was too much commitment. The cost of giving up everything that he had was too great, or at least he thought it was too great. So here's the end of that story. Luke 18, verse 24. And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they that heard it said, Who then can be saved? And he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter said, Lo, we have left all and followed thee. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or parents, or brethren, or wife, or children, for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive manifold more in this present time, and in the world to come life everlasting. Now, that puts it very, very simply. There is a real cost to Christianity, but paying that cost is worth it all. You receive life now, and you receive eternal life in heaven. There, it's a great cost, but it's worth the price. So, we ought not to avoid the cross. What we need to do now is to accept the cross, because the cross is the only way that we can have eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we do thank you for Jesus Christ and the cross. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus who is willing to give up everything for us that we might, through his poverty, be rich, that we might receive the inheritance of eternal life. We thank you for that, Lord. As we see in this text today, we must also give up ourselves. We must be willing to lay down our lives If we want to be true disciples, true followers, we have to be willing to pay the cost. And we firmly believe that people who understand what being a real disciple means, they have no problem at all giving up everything to follow you. Lord, I pray that you would speak to some heart today. Someone who's not saved, help them to understand that saving their life for a little bit now is not going to help. Death is coming, and then an eternal death will come to those who don't receive you as Savior. And then for those that are Christians that are trying to hold on to some things in this, in this life, trying to hold on to some things that they would rather use or time or money, whatever it might be, to use on themselves rather than to use for you, we pray, Lord, they would be willing to give it up, give up all in order to follow you. Bless as we sing now. Speak to your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.